Hello and welcome everyone, and uh, we are so glad to have you today. Joining me is Carl Dockstader, and just to give you a little background on this guy, uh, he's a member of the United Nation, and he's the program coordinator for the Fort Erie Fellowship Center. About four years ago, he and a colleague of his started uh, a podcast called One Dish, One Mic, and since then it's transformed into a weekly on-air radio show, and recently... Uh, he became a recipient of the Canadian Journalism Foundation CBC Fellowship for his outstanding work. I've been on his show before, and uh, ever since our show started, we've communicated back and forth. And finally, it's my delight to uh, introduce this man. And on top of that all, he's an avid Buffalo Bills fan. So I would like to give a big saguli to Mr. Carl Dockstader. Noah, you're, you're very kind. That translates to my name is Carl. No, just kidding. Uh, there's there's a lot more in there. Um, that I, I like to introduce myself with, with my traditional name as often as possible because our, our language is under threat. And I think that using any language, like even if you only know Sigoli, even if you only know Nagitwa when you're saying goodbye to someone or, or something similar to goodbye, or, or if you're saying Yawa to thank someone, I think that, that every bit of language revitalization is, is important. So, so thank you for, for having me on your show. I am a gigantic fan. If, if you go into the archives, you can find an episode where we interview Andrew, Sean and I, my, my uh, podcasting bestie, interview Andrew. And I think that it's really just 45 minutes of me gushing like a fanboy. <laughs> so, uh, but, but you're worth it. I mean, it's, it's really neat concept your show that, that you're doing and I'm, I'm glad to be on for for something maybe a little outside of the box of, of what you normally do so thanks for having me today Andrew it's it's outside of the box but I feel like when we started the show this is more of what we wanted it's easy to talk about dead people because um, if you get something wrong well they're not around to defend themselves what's really hard for me is from a loving history and a background is a lot of times we try as hard as we can to point out that the members of the Six Nations are still around today. They're still a vibrant part of our communities. They still contribute. They're still here and not, you know, it's not like two or three of them left. And on our show, I have to purposely say that the Haudenosaunee are instead of the Haudenosaunee did. And a lot of times we, we use the past tense. I, I apologize to it now. You know, when you're talking about ha past historical events, that happens a lot. But we like to point out, you know, all the contributions that people have made in the past and how they influenced our history and culture and society. And so it's just good to have somebody from today that can, can speak for today. I know you're just one person. I know you don't speak on behalf of all Indigenous people on the continent. I know you don't speak on behalf of everyone from the Oneida Nation, and you probably don't speak on behalf of everyone in your family either. It's good to have other perspectives because, um, you know, Caleb and I realized that we're, we're limited in our scope. I wanted to have somebody come on that could give me an up, not an update, but just what is Oneida culture like today? And what are the issues that your people are facing today? And then I also want to look towards the future. A lot of times we get bogged down in today's issues, today's horrible stuff. And as this podcast is recorded, it's no different. But I realized that years from now, decades from now, hopefully when people are still listening to you and me, looking back through the archives, that, you know, we can, we can look forward and see what, what does the future stand? What does the two row treaty mean for both our peoples in the future going forward? So that's a long winded uh, introduction, but um, I want to turn it over to you, Carl, and just give you really open ended. Uh, just give me a background about yourself and your upbringing. Yeah, they, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Again, I, I think that what you said is probably key. 
And if, if you're just tuning in, if, if you're tuning in because of me, then you've heard me say this before. Uh, if you're tuning into to Iroquois Legends and History podcast and you're hearing me for the first time, I think it is important that we're hitting on that concept that, that Haudenosaunee people are, are still here. And I even, like, like I, I had to check myself. I was helping my daughter, uh, my, my nine-year-old at the time, and now 10-year-old daughter, do, do a project for history. And it's, it's difficult to sift through the history texts and to see them talk about how we were as a people. And it's like, no, no, that's how we are as a people. Like, we're, we're still doing our ceremonies. We're still, I'm literally uh, trying to grow white corn, even as we speak. Like, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, great, it rained last night. Because we're, that's not something that, that lives in a textbook sitting on a, sitting on a shelf somewhere. That's something that, that we want to bring alive. So having an opportunity to come on with you today to, to really remind people that, like Anandigan says about, about living history, that history is something we're still living right now is, is super cool. I, uh, one of the reasons I like to get on this side of the microphone is, is uh, that I don't have to talk about myself. So it's, it's different since, since uh, now you're the one that's technically behind the mic. Um, but, but what I, I mean, what I can say is that it's, uh, what I really pride myself on is, is activity in my own community. I went and I volunteered tirelessly for my friendship center. I work at the Fort Erie Native Friendship Center by day. I volunteered there before I worked there. I volunteered at, at the other, uh, friendship center in our region, the Niagara Regional Native Center. And that for everything we do as Indigenous people, I think, I think it's really evaluated on a, on a community level. And I think that that's something that, that we've actively done is that individual success is, is just not the metric. That's not the measurement for, for who we are as people, uh, at least in, in the community circles that I, that I hang out in. So, so for me, um, my introduction into community was a movement called Idle No More. If you have mostly American listeners, I'm not sure how, how familiar they'll be with that movement, but there was uh, an effort in, in 2012-2013 to, to really gut environmental measures, to take away protection from water, to fundamentally change the relationship between the government and Indigenous people. And four women stood up and said that, that we're not going to be idle anymore. We will be idle no more. And we need to, we need to put a stop to this. And, and our people got behind those women. And all, all of our people, it felt like, like there was a total consensus in our community that, that we'd had enough. And I saw this seismic shift uh, almost 10 years ago where people were like, we have to do something. So, so for me, that was almost my, my rebirth into community. I was, I was just living a regular life and, you know, trying to, trying to hold down a, a good job and trying to buy a house and worrying about the things that normal people worry about. And then I saw this groundswell of activity in our community and, and it really opened my eyes to the fact that, that we need to work together to, to affect wholesale change. And, and my whole life's mission got, got flipped upside down from from there until now and hopefully into the future where where i realize that my my success or failure is tied to the success and failure of everybody else in my community and there is no other way that's what you do can you tell me a little bit about your uh your podcast turned into radio show oh yeah so that's it's funny because i don't i don't see things as separate so um we talk a lot in indigenous communities about about not siloing things there, uh, uh, you know, Americans talk about talk about the separation of church and state, uh, for example. And for uh, here I am, I'm going off on a tangent. You're asking me direct questions, and I'm going off on all these tangents. But but I promise I'll I'll circle back and answer your question. So what the point I'm trying to make is is that I don't see our ways as siloed. I I see our creation story, uh, our, and our origin as a people tied to the the origin of our clans tied to uh, the, the four sacred ceremonies that, that the 12th son brought to us, tied to the story of the great peace, 
tied to the establishment of, of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, tied to who I am as, as a person. The very first thing I did today, by, by design, was speak to you in the language and talk to you about how I'm Oneida, and I'm Bear Clan Oneida, and I'm Hawatsadat Bear Clan Oneida, and that carries a very specific responsibility. So because I carry that responsibility, I think, I think that I did community advocacy, and then that community advocacy stemmed into a podcast where there was this little sort of podcast collective, the Niagara Podcast Network was started, and my friend Sean and I, uh, uh, I'm not even sure how, how we ended up being the two that were selected to do it, but we were both pretty active vocal, vocal gentlemen in our community, and they, they started us in this podcast, and we were just, we were just sort of teeing off on Lynn Bayak, this Canadian senator who, who just doesn't get it, and we were uh, saying things that, I mean, I don't think it's radical to explain why Indigenous people would resist the 150th anniversary of, of Canada. But at the time we were talking about it, people were still like, yeah, that's, that's out there. How could you not love Canada? And we're like, well, we're going to tell you. So we, we sort of had this podcast, and I'm not even sure that our listeners exploded. Uh, I don't even think we're close to touching the kinds of numbers that, that Iroquois History and Legends and podcast uh, has ever had. I don't think we, we've just even gotten to that level, but, but it was more that the message was something that, that didn't exist otherwise. So Sean and I lucked into um, being the, the guys that carried this message forward, and we inherited this great community initiative. We had, we had and have great community support, and we have these rich backgrounds, and, and now it's, it's just things are, are getting uh, moving faster than, than we ever anticipated. So we went from, from being two people that happened to record a conversation that we're having about contemporary issues to, yeah, now all of a sudden, like, like we're going we're, we're gonna to be working with CBC, which is like the national broadcaster in, in Canada. And, and we're, we're just getting calls from like all kinds of places and talking to like big time celebrities. And, and it's just, uh, it, it's unreal. Like, I, I, don't even, I don't even know if I've stopped to sort of ponder like, oh my goodness, you know, we've had Jesse Thistle on our show twice. We've had like Tanya Talaga on our show. Like we, we have best-selling authors. And this Sunday you had uh, Ted Nolan. Yeah, we had Ted Nolan, right? <laughs> and I, I was jealous. I was like, and I really wish that he would have worked out in Buffalo both times. And he, he even coached in Rochester for a season as well. He coached the Amherst. So very well known in, on our side of the imaginary line. Yeah, that was that was a big. I mean, that was that was huge. Actually, I, I want to mention that that we had we had Ted Nolan on, and we had Ted Nolan on. If you're listening to to this podcast and, and you're hearing me for the first time, there is another local broadcaster in Niagara. His name is Rod Mahood, and Rod Mahood does our local sports show. And it's amazing the connection between local community sports and community itself. And so Rod actually got got Ted Nolan on for us. Um, but we knew, we knew we were going to get a draw. We knew we were going to get people that maybe don't normally listen. So that's why we, we brought my friend Patty Crock in afterwards and our other friend, Josh Manitowabe, who is an 18th century historian on, because we, we want to take this platform that we have and whatever attention we can get, we, we want to distribute that attention around as evenly as possible. Tying back to that principle again, that, that Sean and I are, are only as successful as the people who, who are doing well and who are doing not well in our own community. Let me segue into that. The thing with culture, any culture, doesn't matter where in the world, is uh, it's always evolving. It's always adapting. I mean, you have core things, traditions that everybody holds on to, but every new generation, there's new things that are added. That's how things aren't stagnant. I mean, if culture doesn't change, then you're a museum. You know, it's just what was, this is what the Assyrians were like 3,000 years ago. Their culture is just in the history books. It doesn't exist anymore. For people that still exist, their culture still exists and it adapts. How do you and people that you know that 
are from indigenous backgrounds, keep your culture alive. Obviously you've got a foot in the past, like all cultures do. And how do you, how do people add new distinctiveness to whatever they're doing, whether it's art or drama or writing? I mean, there's politicians, there's scientists, there's all, all people, just like normal people. They come from all different walks of life. Can you give me examples of how people thrive to make your culture continuous? Yeah, the, that's, that's the great debate. And it's, it's the debate we have in our communities about preserving tradition. And there's definitely a conservatism about our ways. And I've even heard, heard artists talk about, you know, there, we really, there's a certain style that when you, when you start to follow our people and we start to follow our artists, you'll see certain stylistic uses of plants and of like the way, even the way a fiddlehead is drawn. There's a, there's a uniquely Haudenosaunee way of drawing a fiddlehead in art that if you, if you were to see that in any medium, anywhere, any visual medium, you would instantly go, oh, that's, that's Haudenosaunee. So on the one hand, you want to preserve that. You want to keep that moving forward because when you see that fiddlehead, you go, oh, well, that, that probably goes back to like the time when we first had an interaction with fiddleheads. So we should move that forward. And then the challenge is that art, art is fluid. Art is meant to be something that's engaged with. My friend Sam Thomas is, and his mom, Lorna Thomas-Hill, helped revive raised Iroquoian beadwork as a style that, that was under threat. We, uh, there's lots of beadwork in indigenous country, uh, but specifically raised beadwork is something specific to our people. And that, that's something actually that's probably a great show topic for you is in, in the future or for Sean and I to talk to the people that, that revived this. So Sam and his mom went and they did research and they said, my goodness, there are so few people that are doing this. So they went and they learned it and they mastered it and they brought this style in. And, and one of my favorite quotes from, from Sam Thomas is, is that he wanted to take our art from hanging on the kitchen wall to hanging on the walls of the greatest museums and the greatest art galleries in, in the countries. And, and so that's, that's what he's done is part of it is preserving our ways and doing work like what, what Sam Thomas did. And another one, um, Andrew and I are on, on video, so, so listeners won't be able to see this, but, but another one is, is my friend, my new friend, Janet Rogers, wrote, wrote a poetry collection. And so what she does is, is she reaches back and in the stylings and, and influence of like Pauline Johnson, she, she's writing about contemporary things. She, she has a powerful poem called Lake Michigan, which she wrote obviously before everything happened in, in the time of George Floyd and just this explosion of anti-racism. And, and she captures the, the essence and the plight of the difficulty of Lake Michigan is, is, is um, just, just about jogging around a lake and how different that is for, for a racialized person, for a black person, for an indigenous person than it is for, for a white person. And she masters, I think, this art of, of taking all these classic stylings and then using them in a, in a very contemporary way, but still being true to, to who we are as, as a people. So uh, it, it's, it's amazing to see. It's, it still feels new that, that there is this explosion of, of artists. I mean, again, they're, you know, not, to, not to disrespect the, the artists that have been doing this for a long time, but, but the level that people are creating art, the level that people are consuming art at, um, again, the, the poetry writers, uh, Tyler Pennick, because he's not Haudenosaunee, but he's another urban urban indigenous poet that, that's out there and writing about the the issues of the day. And it's it's just beautiful to to see all this stuff and uh, to create that bridge between who we were as a people and to who we are going to be moving forward. Thanks, Carl. That was awesome, man. All right, here's my next question for you. If you ask a person who's the United States 
first ally. They would look at you and say, I, I got no idea. <laughs> and then if, if you found a person who had a history background, they would tell you, oh, it's France. You know, France came to our aid. But from my research, and it's a pretty substantiated fact, in reality, the Oneida Nation is the answer. In 1777, they helped us um, win the battles at Fort Stanwix, Oriskany, and Saratoga. I had an ancestor that fought at Saratoga. And if you look at any history book, and it says the turning point of the war was Saratoga, because that's what got France involved in the war and helped the Americans win it. But it's the Oneida Nation that was there from the beginning. They fed Washington's army at Valley Forge. Polly Cooper delivered supplies and why do you think that people are so ignorant? Why do you think that people are so ignorant of our history and the thousands of other contributions that First Nations or Indigenous people have made to the United States, Canada, and the world? Well, I wonder. I mean, it's what, what we're coming to terms with doing anti-racism work on our show. Like, like we're actively exploring anti-racism from Indigenous perspectives on our show. Um, and so the, the easy answer might, might be racism. But then when you deconstruct racism, what, what racism actually is, is it's not, this, it's not this evil that plagues society like an infection that uh, you know, is contagious from one person to the next. It's not, it's not um, Hitler and Nazis and the KKK. Uh, what, what racism really is, when you look at it at its core, is, is it's something to protect a power elite status quo. And so when you look at why, why are Indigenous people being erased from, from history, the question, I think the answer is actually simple. It's, it's for economic reasons, and it's to protect the power elite status quo of the modern American empire as it stands right now. There, every, every empire and every great national power has, has its own myths to reinforce, what, to reinforce its own standing. And I think the myth of American exceptionalism is, is, no, is no exception from, from other nations that, that have used the power of story to show who they are. I mean, we, we probably all know about George Washington chopping down a cherry tree that I don't actually think he chopped down. Uh, and we probably all know about Benjamin Franklin and, and we probably all know about all that, that great American early history lore. But, but what we don't know about is how crucial that partnership was with, with indigenous nations. Like if, if the Dutch and the Mohawks don't get together and form the two row, if King George III doesn't make the Royal Proclamation if he doesn't side with William Johnson over Jeffrey Amherst, right? Like Jeffrey, Jeffrey Amherst and William Johnson are, are basically fighting for, for him to take two totally divergent approaches. And, and King George III makes an economic decision. Let's not kid ourselves. And, and he decides that the, the economically prudent thing to do is, is to side with William Johnson and to issue the Royal Proclamation and, and to write the Treaty of Niagara, which bound both a, a pre-Confederate America and, and a pre-Canadian Canada into into an agreement with indigenous people these nations don't don't happen like we just don't have the united states if if it's not for for the oneidas standing up to joseph brandt at the battle of, of Oriskany, uh we just don't have a canada if if it's not for uh, again for king george the third making the royal proclamation because he had to strike a deal with both the haudenosaunee nations and and the western alliance at that time so I think, I think the reason that it got erased, though, is, I mean, the simplest thing to say is, is racism, but to deconstruct racism a little bit and, and have a realization that, that really is to protect a certain status quo, that, that America is, is founded on this idea of, of freedom and of individual liberty and of justice and, and all these sort of principles. But, but the truth is that, that economic, uh, America is as much an economic 
as it is an, an idealistic country and that economically speaking, it's, it's in the best interest of America to say that their wealth is derived from their, their own greatness. Is it too political? Is that, am I like some sort of commie pinky leftover? <laughs> I'm politically, oh, I shouldn't do this because this is a podcast and we try to stay apolitical. I'm a libertarian. So there's a lot of things that you and I do not agree on, but I still want you on the show because I still want your perspective. Okay. And the fact that we can sit down and have a conversation and mm-hmm. to, to me, I would, I would view it as another way. I do think that there's an element of it there, but I think that the root of racism is ignorance and the root of ignorance is people don't care. It's apathy. And then the, the, the the other reason is people are afraid. They're afraid that if they acknowledge these things, then it makes them uncomfortable. And Americans do not like to be uncomfortable. We like to be in our bubble and we don't like people to point out when we have deficits and, and things like that. From my political perspective, I can, I can still nod and agree with a lot of what you said. Do I think that America is exceptional? Yes. But do I think that other nations are exceptional? Yes. Do I think the Oneida are? Yes. Do I think that America has serious flaws with its founding and serial moral decay from the beginning till now? Of course I do. Do I think that there's systemic racism? Yes, I do. If we start from this fact that, hey, I might have underlying prejudice that I don't know about, that's the place to start. That's not, that's not the end all. That's not where you, you end, but that's where you can start to learn. And when you have a conversation from someone from another background, you can be more enlightened and open to where they're coming from and how you work together to solve these problems. There's my soapbox. It's probably the most political I've ever been on the show, but today's a special, special case. I, I appreciate it because um, if there's one thing that I don't want to see, it's polarization. I, I think that I can substantiate all of the arguments that I make. I try not to actually make my own arguments, if that makes sense. Um, I think that, again, as a collectivist, that I think that it's important that I understand where great leaders like like my, if there's one philosophical person whose uh, worldview I try to adopt, it's actually John Mohawk. And if there's one person to study, who I think really nailed writing down our ways and our views. I think thinking in Indian should be mandatory reading for, for anybody that wants to understand Haudenosaunee people uh, and a basic call to consciousness. If you want to understand environmental, uh, spiritual, and both past and future reaching philosophy are, are important. But I also think that it, that uh, we're so polarized, right? And I think that if I had to describe the American nation state today, and I think when historians look back on the on the period that you and I are in right now, Andrew, I think I think they're going to say like, like, why can't someone that sees the world the way Andrew sees it and someone that sees the world the way Carl sees it, why can't they sit down and have a conversation? So by doing this today, I think that I think that it's an act of, of bridging that gap. And, and I won't drag you into into a, a political thing if, if you know uh, more more than you're comfortable with. But even being apolitical, I think, is a form of privilege. And not weighing in on issues is I, I can't not weigh in on issues of race because people just see me differently because the color of my skin is different. Uh, than other people. And that's, that's not a choice that I made. I was racialized by white people. So they, they did that to me. So when I don't say anything, when I say, well, I'm going to be completely apolitical on issues of race, I can't because it affects me when I go to the grocery store. It affects me when I cross the imaginary line. It affects me in every interaction. Statistically speaking, it can be very easily proven every interaction that I have with the police these days. So, so being apolitical is, is a luxury. And I understand that for your show and for your purposes, I, I'm not trying to say that, that you're, you know, oh, look at Andrew and his white privilege refusing to, to weigh in or anything like that. I, I'm not trying to call you out. 
I appreciate the fact that you're giving me a bit of a platform today. Um, but I do think that, that unpacking it is important too. So thank you for that. Most definitely. So let's talk about politics then. <laughs> so my next question is, why are these old, I'm doing air quotes again because it's a podcast, why are these old treaties important? They can't possibly be relevant today, right, Carl? I mean, don't they have like a hundred year expiration date? <laughs> That's great. I love I love the air quotes and, and the tone even. And I think you've nailed the question that, that I've been asked. Um, they, they're, I mean, you could say the same thing about the American Constitution. Why is the American Constitution important? Why is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in, in Canada important? Why, why is anything important? Why, why uh, you could ask that about any set of values. For me, it's, it's the law of the land. So I'll, I'll talk a lot about, I mean, we named, the, we named the show One Dish, One Mic on purpose. We named it after the One Dish, One Spoon Agreement. And uh, I think I had just seen Jamie Jacobs give a presentation on it. Uh, he's another great presenter, does a lot of work with, with the Rochester Museum of Science, um, and including there's a great display there that I have yet to get out and see, but I, I'm going to get up to Rochester and I'm going to check it out. So uh, I just seen Jamie Jacobs and he just talked about, about why this stuff is important. And, and one of the things that, that Jamie Jacobs and then other people that have heard talk about the one dish, one spoon agreement talk about is that this, this isn't the law of the Haudenosaunee. The, the Haudenosaunee, sure, we, we adopted it and we made it into a wampum and, and gave a, you know, a mnemonic representation uh, and, and whatnot. Uh, but really what we did was we took a look at the laws of the land. And that's, that's what a good treaty or a good wampum is, is a representation of, is where, where our world is at and what the world around us is, is doing. So why, why is the one dish, one spoon important uh, today, people might ask. I, I, would, I would challenge people to open their minds to the fact that the one dish, one spoon actually predates the Haudenosaunee people. If we're drawing these examples from nature, then, then we're drawing from, from something that's around us. The one dish, one spoon, it's not, it's not a law like the criminal code uh, where you, you have to do this and you have to do that. It's, it's more a lesson. It's, it's philosophy and it's, it's a lesson in, in how to interact with the world. It is a simple fact that if you cut down the last tree in the world, Andrew, or if I cut down the last tree, or if someone separate from us cuts down the last tree, it is, it is a fact that that tree will be gone for everybody, regardless of who does it. So by understanding that we live in a world of finite resources, and that we need to be respectful in the way we interact with those finite resources, that, that that's, I think, a universal code and something that's being codified. So, so sure, you can go, well, that's, that's a 100-year-old agreement or, or uh, one dish, one spoon. I mean, it really is thousands of years old as a concept. And you can go, well, that doesn't, that doesn't apply to me. And, I mean, you can say that, that gravity doesn't apply to you, right, or that breathing oxygen doesn't apply to you. You can, you can believe whatever you want. But, but it's, it's a lesson and a teaching, and it's something that I think makes us better when we, when we acknowledge. Um, I, I would jump over to the two-row wampum as a similar, a similar framework, the, the two-row wampum for, um, I don't know if you've unpacked treaties. We've not done a whole episode on treaties, but when a treaty comes up, we talk about it. So when we introduced the Dutch, we talked about the two-row treaty. We've talked about the Treaty of Canada, where we've talked about the Treaty of Fort Stanwix. We talked about the Great Peace of Montreal in 1701. And I've mentioned the one dish, one spoon, not in great detail, but, but about a five minute blurb on what it is. So have I mentioned every single treaty from time immemorial till now? No. When one comes up in our narrative, then I, I talk about it. I don't know how Canadian law works, but in America, 
like the Treaty of Canandaigua was ratified by the United States Congress. And according to the United States Constitution, that makes it supreme law of the land, the treaty. It's, it's just as on par with the U.S. Constitution once a treaty is ratified by the, the Congress. It, it trumps all other federal law. Anyway, that's no extra charge. Continue. No, and I, I think that's key. Um, I've seen that in Onondaga Nation. I think they have a website and they talk about ways to be an ally. Another question I get, how can I be an ally to indigenous people? So uh, the, the one thing they talk about though is, is the treaty law is, is the law of the land. It's the supreme law of the land. It's, it's protected by the American constitution. And, and just like the bundle of arrows that we use to, to symbolize how we're brought together as, as a confederacy, uh, again, I'll share the analogy and it's not fresh in people's minds that, that one arrow, one arrow can, can easily be bent and broken, but that a bundle of arrows, it, it may bend but that collectively they're, they're not going to break together. And I would say the treaties are bundled into the very fabric of, of who Americans are and that you can't, you can't separate out the roots of the American nation from the partnerships and the deals and the friendship and, and the respect and the peace that was established with, with indigenous people. And even though I think Americans are, are being an outright crummy partner to indigenous people right now, I still think that partnership and, and friendship exists. I think that, it, that it's a fire that, that can never truly be extinguished because it's, it's so integral to the roots of Americana. Peter Jemison, whenever people ask him questions about um, specifically the Treaty of Canada and other treaties, and they say, you know, the American government broke the treaty, and he'll stop and he'll say, no, the treaty has been violated many times, but it's never broken. We uphold our set of the deal to break a treaty because if we say the treaty's broken, then we have no more relationship with the United States. But uh, Peter says it's violated and we air our grievances, but we're going to hold fast to this covenant. You know, a covenant is, it's not a contract. It's, it's a, it's a perpetual agreement of friendship and uh, mutual everything, cohabitation, co-interdependence, and uh, dating back to the two row treaty that we stay in our stream, you stay in your stream and we, we get along. If I could segue, um, because here's a more open-ended, complicated question, because we're dealing with multiple nations. You know, you're on the Canadian side of the imaginary line. We're on the New York side. And then you have people that live in multiple enclaves of their nations in multiple states from Oklahoma to Wisconsin to New York. I got this email uh, about two weeks ago. It's a guy named Jerome, and he's from uh, the Aquasasne area, which is, you know where that is. He wrote, do you guys have any plans on covering the rights and freedoms of Native Americans, such as hunting and fishing rights, land and treaty rights? For myself, and I know others that feel the same way, we just don't know what our rights are due to not being taught them, and it allows us to get taken advantage of, unquote. This guy, I don't know if he lives directly on the reservation or if he, he lives around the reservation, but he doesn't even know what his rights are. I feel inadequate to even begin to broach the subject. No, I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up. I think uh, one of the earlier questions you had sent me before was, was about um, urban indigenous identity. And I, I want to I put a pin in that and, and get back to that. But it actually, I think, ties into this point. So, and that, that's something that I called my dad before, uh, before I talked to you. Again, a collectivist, right? I want to make sure that, that I'm sort of representing a view across the spectrum as opposed to just coming on here and saying, well, Carl feels this and Carl feels that. I'm really trying to reflect how, how different people feel. So, so I talked to him and the conversation sort of segued to when did I realize that I was an indigenous person? When did I realize that I was different? 
And unfortunately for me, it goes back to an early act of racism when, when my peers were, were teasing me and, and saying that, that I looked, I looked Chinese. Um, and I, I went home crying and like, what's going on? And we're not Chinese, are we? And it like, it was really, uh, this, this eye-opening moment when I realized that I'm different. But then when, when, uh, and that happened before I was 10. So then I turned 10 years of age and that's when, that's when Oka happened. And it, Oka is actually there, there's a show in there. I mean, it's, it's been well documented, but that's a great piece of history because it, in 1990, in the summer of 1990, a little town of, of Oka, Quebec, just, just outside of the Ganesadage reservation, decided that they wanted to expand a golf course on disputed lands and the Ganesadage Mohawks said you're you're not building into this pine forest where our ancestors are literally buried you're not desecrating their graves any more than than you already have this is this is enough expansion and it it lit this powder keg of of politics it it just lit the entire world on fire in terms of indigenous people had, had stood up before in the past, but this was catapulted into the national consciousness. And at 10 years of age, I didn't even really know what was happening. I know, I know that my mom and, and my sister and others sort of um, dragged me along with, with all the other women. And in, in the little old town of Fort Erie, which is about as far from, from Ganesadage as you can get, we were all brought together and we were said, we, you need to watch what's happening. We need to understand what's what's happening here. We need to send food. We need to send people. We need to support these Mohawks that are that are taking a stand, because our our um, our rights were being affronted. And so, at ten years of age, that's my sort of political awakening: is that if if we don't, if those Mohawks don't stand up to the developer in in that pine forest in Kanasadage. Then, then it becomes another golf course. And I don't know how many golf courses Western people need, but apparently they needed just one more. But, but fortunately, the Mohawks stood up to them. And so for me, that, that was my call to consciousness. My earliest call to consciousness was at 10 years of age, where I'm like, politically, this is important. Now, in the modern day, I sort of realized that not everybody had that. Like I, I was at the hip of, of my mom and sister at the time and, and about the knee, as, as we say, and brought in in that fold. And, and a lot of the, the young people and, and all the people in Fortier were, were brought into this. But I am seeing that, that there are Indigenous people that, that don't know what rights we have. And if you, I mean, if you want to talk about hunting and fishing, I mean, you, you talked about the Treaty of Montreal. That happened at the same time as, as the Treaty of Albany. And when I was talking to Josh Manitowabe, who was on the show, and when I've talked to other Anishinaabe scholars, they've said that, that that's in and around the time that the Western Confederacy also adopted the principles of the one dish, one spoon. So when, when it comes to where our rights stem from, again, you, you have early um, the precursors to, to really French Canada is obviously France. The precursor to the United States before it's split off in, into Canada and, and the United States is, is really England. And then the nations that, that happen to be like like right where we live. I, I live in Niagara Falls, Ontario, uh, and you're you're from the Rochester area. The nations that were here were, were primarily Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee nations. And you know, in a gross oversimplification, those are the four sort of dominant powers at the time. They all established peace at that time. And what but more importantly, what they established was that they were going to share things and that they were going to have to share resources to be able to continue as nations. And so they use the two row wampum as a framework. They establish the one dish, one spoon. And when you look at the language of the Treaty of Montreal and you look at the language of, of the Treaty of Nanfan or the Treaty of Albany, you see a lot of those, those principles that are, that are reflected in, in those agreements. And so that becomes the foundation for rights going to, to hunting and fishing rights specifically, uh, we have a brilliant Mohawk lawyer named, named Paul Williams who actually litigated with, with uh, one of my uncles, uh, Jesse Ireland, and, and another gentleman went out 
and they were hunting raccoon off of reservation limits. And they followed traditional protocol to the T. They were arrested by, by our hunting and, and fishing and game department, whatever it was, the ministry of, of whatever it was called at that time. And they were taken to court. And, and they, they won that court case pretty handily where, where the government said that, yeah, you, you definitely have hunting rights. It does stem back to the Treaty of Nanfan. It really precedes the Treaty of Nanfan. And that these rights are, it's, it's really quite a quite simple legal concept that, that you have always done things this way and you have the right to always do these things moving way into the future. So for people that, that want to understand our rights, I mean, obviously listen to Iroquois History and Legends. And then if you can tune in on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern time to 610 CKTV, you don't have to be in the Niagara area. Anybody with the internet can, can just go to 610ckTV.com at 10 a.m. Eastern time and listen to us. And these are some of the ways. There's resources in, in Akwesasne, like, like there's ways to engage. Um, but our rights are, are out there. But I, I hope that by understanding history and by following the news that, that you get an opportunity to, to understand um, where our rights stem from, what, what they're about and, and what they'll mean for us moving forward and why they're important. And I would say, read the Treaty of Canandaigua. I mean, I, I know that there's treaties that predate that by a long bit, but that's the first treaty with the United States government with, and I know that the Mohawk didn't ratify it, it covers, it covers everyone. And in New York state, you absolutely have a right to hunt without a license. You get a license. They take technically make you get a license, but you do not have to pay for it uh, to hunt or fish. And I mean, how the wording in the Treaty of Canandaigua is, is unrestricted rights to hunt. And I know that doesn't really fly today, but technically speaking, originally how it was written, was you want to go on Farmer Jones's farm and shoot something, you can, because it's it's shared space. You're you're allowed to hunt wherever you want. Now they've restricted it down to state land, or you know where you have permission. I, I hunt, I fish, I, I follow the game rules, but you know I have to pay for my license. Why? Because that's the rule for me. But you know the U.S. government did not make a treaty with me or my ancestors, and. It really is a small, small consequence. Um, we tell us a, a sad story of when Red Jacket goes to hunt years after, just a, a decade or so after the, the Treaty of Canandaigua. And he goes and he runs into a fence and he runs into another fence. He's going to hunt and there's just fences up everywhere and he can't hunt. A lot of times, especially in our education, what is limited to uh, education about native tribes and nations and peoples is we pretty much talk about the trail of tears and wounded knee and that's about it. I like to raise people to the issues that there have been numerous treaty violations and statutes that have been overlooked and ignored as of today. I mean even even within the past generation you talk about what happened to the Seneca and the Tuscarora with their lands literally being confiscated and flooded in the 60s and early 70s. It's like this stuff is not from 200 years ago. This is stuff that still happens today. And it's sad that people still have to be vigilant against their rights and their lands. Could you raise some other issues that you think that people are violating and stepping on today? Well, I think, I mean, it's uh, a travel to Akwesasne where the gentleman who, who wrote you was from. And I had heard that Akwesasne is a community that's that's divided. So so the Akwesasne Mohawks were, were just... Uh, to the east of the Thousand Islands area for people that, that don't know, near present-day Cornwall, Ontario. And uh, they they were there. And so the reserve system got set up. And then 
well after the Mohawks had, had lived in this territory, Quebec decided to be its own province and Ontario decided to be its own province within Canada. And then New York was, was established. And so you have three boundaries within, within one, one community. And the poor, the poor Aquasasne Mohawks still to this day have great issues with, with border police. And if you happen to live on an island part and you want to go see your family member who is, is your direct relative and you want to go visit them, you, you have to like, if you go from New York to Ontario, you have to drive across a bridge from the New York part of the same reservation onto Cornwall Island. Then you have to leave Cornwall Island, check in with customs, return to Cornwall Island in Ontario, and then go about your business. And if you don't, they'll, they'll slap you with a thousand dollar fine. The police will chase you. Like they'll, they'll litigate this thing to, to no end. Canada and its notions of sovereignty. Again, we, we don't have time to really unpack, to unpack all of that. Um, but but that's that's how that community was was divided by borderlines, uh, and I think that that's that's a pressing and relevant issue today. Uh, I was just looking it up. July eighteenth, we're we're going to cross this border. Uh, if there's COVID or not, or at least one person will be crossing the border on July eighteenth to to establish our border crossing right. Uh, we I live here in Niagara Falls, Ontario. The the closest reservation is actually not Six Nations. It's it's the Tuscarora Reservation, just outside of Sanborn, New York. And it was Clinton Rickard, the Tuscarora chief, who worked with Descahe, Levi General, to establish our border crossing right in, in 1924 when the RCMP came with guns to try and manually dismember the, the power of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. It was Descahe who stood up to them with his buddy Clinton Rickard, who said, who said that our ways are going to continue no matter what. So unfortunately, um, Levi General got got sick, uh, Descahe got sick, and he got stranded on, on the so-called American side of the line, and they actually denied the medicine people the ability to go and give him the traditional medicines that he needed by using that international line, by weaponizing the border. They, they actually caused the death of Descahe at, at the time by withholding the resources that he needed. And from there on forward, Clinton Rickard and, and others dedicated themselves to to establishing that this right that was that was guaranteed to us in the J Treaty, uh, and reaffirmed by some of the principles in, in agreements like the Treaty of Canandaigua and, and others, that we have the right to cross that line. So every single day, that right exists for us to cross the line. But particularly this year, where you never know when something sneaky might happen. So we're going to make sure that on July 18th that that we're crossing the line and that we're continuing our border crossing rights. Um, but that, that's, I mean, that's a modern example again of how Canada doesn't acknowledge the Jay Treaty. All they would have to do is change one word and one clause and one law in one place, and they could give us border crossing rights, relieving the burden of, of the people of Aquasasne, relieving the people, the burden of people like myself. I, I live here in so-called Ontario. My dad lives in so-called New York state. And I have to go through this like rigorous process every time I want to just go and have a coffee with my dad, who lives like a 20 minute drive from me. It's, it's ridiculous. The steps, the steps that we have to go through. Could you briefly touch on um, passports? This is a few years ago, even before I started doing a podcast. I, I have um, friends um, who are Tuscarora, known them for the last 20 years. And uh, one day the father was just talking to me. He's like, you know, I can get my own passport I was like, you, what? He's like, oh yeah, I can get an Iroquois passport. It's like, you can? He's like, oh yeah, lots of people have them. I was like, tell me more. <laughs> what I want people to understand is that the six nations, there's a, there's a key word in that sentence, nation. People may call them reservations, but how different would it be if we actually looked at these like, okay, New York ends here and this is the Oneida nation. What if 
we set up bars that came down and you had to check your passports and get a visa every time you went into these countries. How much different would that be? And I know that in Onondaga, they uh, sometimes do that uh, ceremonially. Like when they had the, uh, the lacrosse tournaments there, they had uh, visiting nations come in and literally stamp their passports with their, their official stamp. But could you talk about the passports and why people with something up their butt just don't want to acknowledge them? <laughs> It's, it's truly a great act of sovereignty to, to exercise your rights as a nation. And I, I do think that it's something that, that maybe Canadians and Americans take, take for granted. They're, regardless of how I feel politically about, about how the United States and Canada are conducting their business these days, I do acknowledge the fact that the fact that these countries were established, that these nation states were established, these were hard fought battles. And it took the work of, of many generations of people to really establish these countries but that ultimately they're newer than, than our country. Uh, even calling it a country uh, or a nation state, that's, that's sort of a newer colonial term. But I, I think that we've embraced the idea of being First Nations uh, largely because it does acknowledge the fact that, that we've been here for a long, long, long time. So what the, the story of the Haudenosaunee passport, I think is is really clever uh, way of reminding people that, that we're still here. We've always been here, we're here currently, and we intend to be here forever. So they, um, I think this goes back to really, uh, the history goes back a long way, but one of, one of the resources that we have in our community is, is a gentleman named Tim Johnson. And Tim Johnson has uh, worked for the Smithsonian for the longest time. He actually developed a lot of American curriculum around Haudenosaunee ways. And, and he, uh, I'm actually looking at, now that, uh, you know what, I'm going to bust it up. Oh, I, I, we're not on, uh, we're on the radio, we're not on digital. I keep reaching and grabbing for things, and, and uh, they're just things that I've had by for, for presentations we've been doing. The Haudenosaunee lacrosse team, the Iroquois Nationals, was headed over to an international tournament, and I believe that they were headed over to New Zealand. And so the Canadian lacrosse team had a Canadian flag, and the American lacrosse team had an American flag, and the New Zealand team had a New Zealand flag. So I think it was Orin Lyons, if I'm remembering. Tim Johnson has told me the story a million times, and I'm never sure if I quite get it right. So I think it was it was Orrin Lyons and Rick Hill that were sort of having a conversation that, well, all these other countries have a flag. We need a flag, too. So, so they decided that they were going to use the Hiawatha belt um, or the belt of, of many nations and that they were going to actually put it on a flag. So, so Tim Johnson's father owned a print shop at the time and they didn't have the computer. They didn't have all these, you know, fun things that we have now. There was no Adobe this or that to do it with. He actually went and, and he hand cut out an exact replica of the Hiawatha belt. And they, they use that as, as their flag. And the Iroquois lacrosse team actually traveled with that. And, and to this day, you see the flags. I mean, there's one flying in front of my house right now. <laughs> you see them flying in front of um, all, all these different places. And, and just like the passport are just a visual reminder and an aesthetic reminder and something you can have in your hand and feel that, that reminds people that, that we're, we're still here. I have, I have one at my house. Right on, right on. That's good. One time somebody stopped in and said, are you Iroquois? I was like, no, I just, I just like them as friends. <laughs> I don't think you should have to be Haudenosaunee to fly a Haudenosaunee flag. Um, it just, you know, lets us know you're friendly. <laughs> Speaking of allies, we, we brought that up earlier. If the Oneida Nation is America's oldest ally, and I understand that lots of other First Nations are as well, uh, our allies and neighbors, how can we or slash I be an ally? And when I, again, I'm using the air quotes here, ally, I'm not talking about people that are all self-righteous, you know, keyboard warriors that think they're super woke and just post 
oh, my, my job to be an ally is to post controversial things online saying how everyone's a racist. And so see, I'm really cool because I call everyone out on their racism or their ignorance. How, how do you be an actual practical ally and, and not just somebody that sits at home and makes themselves feel better? The easiest way is to do things like listen, listen to your podcast and, and understand uh, history and understand the role that Unguahome people played in the, in the history of our non-Indigenous friends. Um, another great way is, of course, listen to One Dish, One Mike with Sundays on AM 610 CKTV at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm a huge proponent of, of authors, of reading Indigenous authors. I'm in a reference to John Mohawk and, and his works. Uh, I've, I've, I've read him. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's really got a perspective that, uh, that he captured. And, and from talking to people, unfortunately, I never, I never had a chance to meet him. He passed in 2005. But I've talked to so many people who's left an imprint on. Had you met him? Uh, no, never met him. But um, I used his book exclusively on the war of the Seneca and the French when we we talked about when Denonville came down and burned Ganondagan. And that, he, did, he did a whole, it wasn't a huge book, but it, it was more like a 30, 40 page illustrated book just talking about the history of what went on there. And it was, it was vital because, you know, you can't use Wikipedia for everything yeah. you need. You need actual scholarly research sources. Knowing history, knowing authors, uh, going going to talks. We uh, again, it was it was different before COVID, but the Niagara Falls Museum, where I live in Niagara Falls, Ontario, was was hosting um, great great artists and great speakers. The last time I saw Paul Williams speak speak live was actually at the Niagara Falls History Museum, and uh, going going to the Rochester Museum and Science Center and and checking out the Great Seneca exhibit that's that's there. Uh, going to uh, understanding all the historical places in Buffalo. Like if you're living in Western New York, that, that there are actually great historical locations in Buffalo and understanding the history of Buffalo Creek is, is so important. And, and knowing about the people that, that were there before the Senecas, even understanding the history of the neutral nations is, I mean, history is such a key. Reading uh, Susan Hill is another one that she probably is a modern scholar that, that's truly did, did a great job uh, talking about the history of Six Nations and the establishment of the Grand River and understanding the history of the Haldeman Tract and the deals that were made and broken and, and reformed in that time. Susan Hill did a, did a terrific job. Uh, I, I would recommend reading her. There, there's so many, like by, by naming one or two authors, I risk, you know, leaving off the dozens of authors, but, but there's so many Six Nations specific scholars that are scholars and academics and writers that are out there. Art is another one. Janet, Janet Marie Rogers' new book, Ego of a Nation, we, we had her on our show recently, is, is another one that, that her poems are, you know, a couple pages long at the most, but they're an easy way to, to capture the emotional place of where we're at as a people. It's very raw. She's very visual in the way she writes. She, her feelings are very strong in that. So, so following a poet like her, following Indigenous people on Twitter, if, if that's your, you know, if that's your platform, you can follow me at Carl Dockstater if you want on on Twitter. Um, but then most, the most important thing I think is is actually to come out, is actually to to get out of your house and to go to Ganondigan when there's living history events. If you live in my area, to engage the friendship centers, like we're always putting on socials and non-Indigenous people are, of course, welcome at, at socials to go to these presentations when the museum brings in speakers and brings in someone like Raymond Skye, who's another celebrated artist who uh, going and seeing these exhibits and, and showing up in person to, to interact 
with indigenous people is, is so key. So this is just some of the things. I mean, there, there's a huge list. We, we talked about the list that's, that's on, uh, I think it's to rowampum.org that talks about how to be, how to be a good ally. Like there's a bunch of different political things and acknowledging our rights and, and a bunch of great ways that, that you can do that too. So there, there's, there's lots that, that's out there, but yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's got to extend from, from the keyboard out into the real world. If, if, if you don't want to go out, the easiest way is to read a book or to engage with indigenous people on, on, on online platforms where possible. But the absolute best way is get to know the indigenous people in your community. We're working hard to, to create resources, but we need as much support as possible so that those resources flourish and so that we can make more projects and continue on. When you talk about, you say you come from a, an urban perspective, what, what does that mean, urban versus a, a traditional rural person? I'm not, I'm not sure I even understand exactly what you mean when you say that. Yeah, I, I wanted I wanted to talk about it, and and I know we've already been talking for a long time, so I'm not going to unpack the the whole thing. But I think at the core of what makes one dish one make different as a radio show from from any other radio show that's out there, like there's this really rich tradition of Indigenous radio. Like, like just Google Radio Free Alcatraz, and you'll get all these great articles. And like David Troyer writes wrote a piece in the New York Times about the early days of, of Radio Free Alcatraz, which is which is just fascinating and it's it's sort of bittersweet the story that he tells but but definitely interesting so there's this rich tradition of indigenous storytelling through the format of, of radio so sean and i inherited this this sean vanderclis is my co-host on one dish one mic and we inherited this great legacy of indigenous storytelling but we kind of realized that that by being an urban indigenous podcast or, and then broadcast we're doing something a little unique in that we're, we have now carved out this unique identity as urban indigenous people. I've never lived on Oneida of the Thames. I've, I've been there, I go there for ceremony, I have friends that live on Oneida. I'm strongly connected to, to Oneida of the Thames near London, Ontario. I lived in London even, so I live right next to it, but I've never actually lived there. Similarly, Sean's been to Curve Lake, he goes to Curve Lake Powwow back when we could have powwows, but he's never actually lived there. So here we are, we're these people that our, our people came to Niagara and Fort Erie and Buffalo for, for a whole bunch of, of socioeconomic and, and political reasons and all these different things, but, but we came here. And we, we didn't quite fit in here, and then we didn't quite fit in where we're from. So we're sort of exiled from two worlds, and we found refuge in each other. And we established our own communities. And, and so it, it started out as social clubs, and, and that sort of thing branched into this beautiful movement, the Friendship Center movement, and has now turned into this, this really unique urban indigenous identity that, that we have. And so when I was talking to my dad, even, and, and the reasons that he came here and the reasons that, that we stayed here, there, there's just so much, there's so much connection there that, again, it, it's, like, it's like everywhere we go, um, as long as we're there, then our people are there and our ways continue there. So we've created this, this beautiful movement and we've created this this chance to to grow community and this this even the connection of of a guy from Curve Lake and a guy from from Oneida becoming best friends on on the radio it's it's an unlikely friendship except that our urban indigeneity drove us together and and drove us to hopefully make very interesting radio together i have one final question and we talk about this all the way back i think in our second episode we talk about the in the great law of peace, whenever people get together and they make a decision for the community, they always want to look seven generations in the past, see what has happened, what were the results of their actions. And then, as far and as well as they can tell, look seven generations in the future and try and see what the best decision is. Where do you see the Oneida Nation and 
I know it's a, it's a big thing to prognosticate, but uh, where do you see the Oneida Nation and others, and maybe even Canada and the United States in seven generations, which I mean, I don't know how you count a generation, but that's about 200 years in the future, roughly. Yeah, it, it depends on so much. And we, I mean, we have prophecies and stuff that, that talk about our future. And I, I thought about this question. Uh, I, I don't know how much behind the camera stuff we want to share with the listeners, but, but you sent me an outline of what we were going to talk about. And I, I probably thought about this question the most and pre-prepared the least in terms of answering it. So what, what I really thought about is that if, if you think about what the analogy of the, sen- the seven generations represents is that we're, we're supposed to have a vision as a people. And when you look at our visual representations that, that we try to share with people, one of our great visual representations is, is the great tree of peace that was planted when, when the great peace was established. And, and you'll see depictions of it with our weapons buried underneath showing that we're supposed to have a peace. Um, but then it also embodies the, these principles of, of peace by bearing the weapons of power, the strength of the tree itself, and, and we call it Gazenstansla, which more closely translates to, to the capacity that we have as a people, that strength that we get by, by growing and by working together. Um, but then what I've heard recently is, is that the Gatnigulio, that principle of, of good-mindedness, I've heard it most recently described as being not just justice, not just goodness, not just righteousness, not just good-mindedness, but actually being of, of a social justice principle and philosophy. So when I think of that great eagle flying above the tree, I think that, that the eagle is supposed to serve two purposes for us. The eagle is supposed to look back and to remind us of, of the messages that, that we got in the past and the things that our ancestors had done 200 years ago, right? When, when our ancestors seven generations ago were, were establishing the Treaty of Niagara and signing the Treaty of Canandaigua. And, and I, I don't like the Fort Stanwix one so much, but uh, <laughs> when they were working on these, on these agreements and fighting in the War of 1812 and stuff and thinking about, about how much that impacts us, both, both good and bad now that we're supposed to learn from that. So when I think about where where I want us to be in seven generations as a people and, and my hope for our people, I hope that those principles still hold true. I hope that the great tree of peace is still standing. I hope that the eagle is still flying flying above. I hope that the one dish, one spoon is is being followed and that people are being mindful of our impact on on our mother of the earth. And the fact that if you if you take, 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 that that, that, that hurts her. And and that hopefully we don't we don't drink every last drop and we don't cut down every last tree and, and breathe every last drop of air. I, I hope that we continue our ways of peace into the future. I hope that language flourishes and I hope that there's a pocket of people that are, that are speaking with each other in full conversations in Oneida and appreciating how, how old that language is and how much there, there are things in the language that, that will connect us to the land. There will have to be new Oneida words that are made for, for the words that are lost. And I actually think that that's a beautiful opportunity too for, for people to grow and to move forward. So, when I, I mean, in, in the concisest terms possible, which is not my specialty for people that are still with us after this length of podcast, if I had to put it in the most concise terms possible, what I want for our future is what we have now and what we had in our past. And I want us to continue to, to have that moving forward. I think that's so important. And I think it's possible. And I hope our friends come along with us. I hope Canada and the United States grow and get away from, from this um, polarization that the United States is definitely going through, but it looks like Canada is, is following right behind its uh, its older brother there, the United States, and following in those same footsteps. And I hope we move past the polarization and that we have peace and that we can share the great riches that, that we have with each other and, and that seven generations from now we're saying things are so good. We've got to keep them so good. 
as opposed to maybe what people are saying right now. Yeah. I apologize for America and Canada's immaturity, but in our defense, you guys are so much older and mature that we, we just need a few centuries to get our act together. I mean, when, <laughs> you know, when we reach the, the point of, you know, your establishment, maybe we'll get there. Thank you. Thank you for that. Language really is at the root of every culture. And um, so if you could do me a favor, Carl, could you teach me how to say uh, thank you and goodbye? Yeah, for sure. Nyonko uh, is how we say thank you. And Nigitwa is how we say goodbye. And I, I'll say to you, Nyonko, Nigitwa. So there's no way I'm going to get this in one take. So Nyonko. Yeah, that's good. Nyonko. And goodbye is? Nigitwa. Nigitwa. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. You got the glottal. You got the, there's a glottal after the geet. So Nigitwa. Yeah. But since I'm clumsy in Oneida, I, I just wanted to say thank you so much, Carl, for your perspectives today, for your time. Uh, tell your family thank you for letting me steal you away. Tell, uh, Sean actually threatened me on Twitter um, saying that I could only have you for, uh, for one podcast. So um, tell him that you're safe. But uh, thank you so much. And uh, thank you. I know you've been with us from the beginning, just uh, sending us encouragement and everything. So uh, do, do appreciate your friendship and uh and everything else and folks please check it check out carl and sean's show did you have anything else to add carl no thanks thanks for having me on we'll we'll have to catch up with you one of these years that uh we both go to the treaty of canandaigua i'm a big fan of of what you're trying to do with with the show i think that it's it's a great act of of support and uh th this has already gone on for a long long time so i'll just say thank you for for having me on don't don't forget to check out one dish one mic uh we have a website one dish one mic.com where you can see what's happening uh, give us give us a listen, and uh, I think you'll be pretty happy with with what you hear. I'm really happy that you had me on today. Thank you very much, Andrew. Nyawa, nigitwa. Nyawa, nigitwa.